In March of 2020, the American College of OBGYN will release Practice Bulletin number 217. This is on pre-labor rupture of membranes. Medicine moves fast. This practice bulletin replaces the previous one on the same subject, which was just released in January of 2018. This new practice bulletin has updated information regarding the diagnosis of pre-labor rupture of membranes with a specific focus on tests like amnesure. And there's also a big change regarding expectant management of pre-labor rupture of membranes in gestations between 34 weeks and 0 days and 36 weeks and 6 days. So let's highlight these major changes now. One of the first changes to occur with PROM management had to do with the nomenclature itself. Traditionally called premature rupture of membranes, the word premature was confusing for patients because it had nothing to do with gestational age, but rather the timing and onset of rupture compared to the beginning of labor. So one of the first changes that the revitalized program and ACOG adopted was changing premature rupture of membranes to the term pre-labor rupture of membranes. Well, in this March of 2020 new practice bulletin, information is highlighted regarding the potential misuse and over-reliance of lab tests for the diagnosis of this condition. The diagnosis of membrane rupture typically is confirmed by conventional clinical assessment, which includes sterile speculum examination. This can also include the visualization of amniotic fluid passing from the cervical canal or pooling in the vagina. A simple pH test of vaginal fluid can also be obtained or visualization of arborization of dried vaginal fluid. The normal pH of vaginal secretions is generally about 3.8 to 4.5, whereas amniotic fluid generally has a pH of about 7.1 to 7.3. False positive tests can occur because of blood or semen, alkaline antiseptics, certain lubricants, trichomoniasis, or bacterial vaginosis. Alternatively, false negative test results can occur with prolonged membrane rupture and minimal residual fluid. ACOG states that in equivocal cases, additional tests may aid in the diagnosis. So keep that in mind, that ACOG considers the use of lab testing and things like amnesure ancillary, not primary, for the diagnosis of PROM. Ultrasound examination of amniotic fluid volume can also be a useful adjuvant, but is not diagnostic. Fetal fibronectin is a sensitive but nonspecific test for ruptured membranes. A negative test result suggests intact membranes, but a positive test result is not diagnostic of PROM. Several commercially available tests for amniotic proteins are currently on the market with reported high sensitivity for PROM. But remember that these tests also carry potential false positive risks ranging from 19 to 30 percent even in patients with intact membranes. These tests are appealing because of the clear requirements for other things like natrazine and fern testing. 
But the studies evaluating these protein tests are problematic because most of them use conventional clinical assessment, like pooling, ferning, or pH as controls or gold standards for the diagnosis of rupture of membranes, calling into question their utility in equivocal cases. Additionally, and here's a clinical pearl, remember that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration released a letter to healthcare providers in response to adverse events related to their use, including 13 fetal deaths and multiple reports for health complications in pregnant women. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration letter reminded healthcare providers that these tests should not be used without other clinical assessments, like a sterile speculum exam because of, quote, misuse, over-reliance, and inaccurate interpretation of lab test results from rupture of membrane used to detect these rupture of membrane possibilities in pregnant women. These can lead to serious adverse events, including fetal death, infection, and other health complications in pregnant women, and that's straight out of the U.S. FDA letter. So at most, according to the college, these tests should be considered selectively relative to standard methods of diagnosis. Said another way, the way to diagnose PROM is not based on the amnesure or similar test alone. Those tests can be helpful to support or refute a clinical diagnosis, but the diagnosis primarily is by sterile speculum examination. As a case in point, I was on call yesterday in labor and delivery and a patient presented with a history that was pretty compatible with ruptured membranes. An amnesure lab test was collected prior to my sterile spec exam and that test returned negative for rupture. However, once I performed the sterile speculum examination, it was clear and pretty obvious that the patient was in fact ruptured, so she was admitted for augmentation. So even though I have learned, and the data originally showed, that a negative amnesure was 99% in terms of its negative predictive value, remember, this is exactly what the FDA was warning about. The diagnosis should not be relied upon based on the lab test, but the value of the diagnosis is based on clinical assessment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day. Stay at Whole Foods Market. I've said it before, medicine keeps changing. And just from the prior practice bulletin from January of 2018, remember that the college had originally stated, and it was traditional management, that PROM in patients at 34 weeks and zero days and above were all basically treated the same and induction of labor was traditionally recommended. However, this is also now changing. So according to the college, at 34 and 07 weeks and before 37 weeks and zero days, delivery was traditionally recommended for all women with ruptured membranes. Remember that this interval from 34 weeks to 36 and 6 is called the late preterm period. 
a new, large, randomized trial of over 1,800 women that evaluated immediate delivery or shortly after the diagnosis and preferably within 24 hours versus expected management in patients with PROM between 34 weeks and 0 days and 36 weeks and 6 days suggests benefit to expectant management. Expected management was according to local practice in participating centers in this trial, with 73% of patients managed in a hospital setting. There was no significant difference in the primary outcome, which was neonatal sepsis, or in the secondary outcome of composite neonatal morbidity. Infants in the immediate delivery group did have higher rates of respiratory distress and mechanical ventilation and spent more days in the ICU. However, maternal adverse events like hemorrhage and infection were approximately two-fold higher with expected management, although the rate of C-section birth was lower. So according to the authors, the findings suggest that if expected management is chosen, it should include careful monitoring of symptoms and signs of infection and chorioamnionitis. This monitoring may be best done in a hospital setting. An individual participant data meta-analysis of three trials showed similar results with no difference in composite adverse neonatal outcome or neonatal sepsis when comparing expectant management with immediate delivery. In addition, immediate delivery resulted in higher rates of respiratory distress syndrome, intensive care admission, and cesarean birth. Either expectant management or immediate delivery in patients with PROM in this late preterm interval is a reasonable option according to the college, although the balance between risk and benefit from both maternal and neonatal perspectives should be carefully considered and patients should be counseled clearly. Care should be individualized through shared decision-making between the healthcare provider and the patient. And remember that latency antibiotics are not appropriate in this setting in the late preterm interval, although steroids should still be considered according to the ALPS trial. Again, the ALPS trial, or the Antepartum Late Preterm Steroids Investigation, showed that betamethasone in the late preterm period between 34 weeks and 0 days and 36 weeks and 6 days reduces respiratory morbidity in newborns. Although a sub-analysis was not done, about 22% of study patients had preterm PROM in that trial. A single course of corticosteroids was recommended by those authors for pregnant women between 34 weeks and 0 days and 36 weeks and 6 days of gestation, and this has been approved by the ACOG. But remember that late preterm administration of antenatal corticosteroids for fetal lung maturity is not indicated in women who are diagnosed with clinical chorioamnionitis. And remember, that's specifically stated for patients in the late preterm period. All right, now we have to clarify this issue of steroid use in the presence of intraamniotic infection because there's actually not a lot of guidelines regarding the administration of dexamethasone or betamethasone in patients with suspected intraamniotic infection.
According to the World Health Organization, as of 2015, the WHO recommends not to use antenatal corticosteroid therapy in women with chorioamnionitis who are at risk of preterm birth. However, remember that this is talking about a global issue and it may not apply to industrialized nations. According to the WHO, here's what they state in their bulletin. Timely delivery of the baby to avoid further intrauterine insult should be the priority when the diagnosis of clinical chorioamnionitis, now called intramniotic infection, is made. Antenatal corticosteroid therapy should not be initiated at the expense of timely delivery when indicated by maternal or fetal condition. Again, the WHO states that antenatal corticosteroids should be avoided in women with evidence of ongoing systemic infection like septicemia or, of course, TB. And remember, this is coming from a global perspective. However, U.S. data and data from the U.K. have actually shown that in patients with otherwise mild IAI, again, that's intraamniotic infection, and who are not in septic shock, the use of these steroids may actually still have fetal benefit without additional maternal harm. All right, as we end this podcast, let's drive home this message that the consensus on steroid use in patients with suspected choreo is not definitive. Although the World Health Organization frowns upon the use of steroids in patients with suspected chorioamnionitis, Again, remember that they're coming from a global perspective, but information from the U.S. is actually a little different. Actually, a previous ACOG practice bulletin clearly stated that antenatal corticosteroids should be given to promote fetal lung maturity even in the setting of maternal sepsis and was not even contraindicated in the ICU setting. All right, that wraps up our quick review highlighting some pertinent changes in the management of pre-labor rupture of membranes according to the college March 2020 practice bulletin. So things keep changing. Remember, don't over-rely on lab tests and make sure that the diagnosis of pre-labor rupture of membranes is done by clinical assessment. And in patients at 34 weeks and above, consideration may actually be given to expectant management as a shared decision-making process. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.